0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Brian O'Malley, who is a partner at Forerunner. Forerunner is one of the top consumer venture capital firms that tirelessly champions founders who delivered the innovation they demand. Some of Brian's investments include Sunday, Canal, and Dumpling. They last raised $1 billion for their Fund 6. We discuss how Forerunner's thesis has evolved over the past few years, what is the empowerment economy which Brian focuses a lot on, and how he thinks about valuation and the venture climate today. Without further ado, here's Brian. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite.
0: No, I really, really appreciate you coming on. I've been trying to have someone from Forerunner come on for the past two years, so I'm so excited to have you on. So why did you want to invest in consumer, and how do you define investing in consumer today?
1: Sure. So for me, my background as an entrepreneur was much more in the enterprise space. And what that meant was that you would have these big deployments You would be like taking people out to wine. You'd try to play golf with the right people. And it wasn't really about who had the best product. And so it was incredibly frustrating for me because there were some times where like we should have won the deal because we would have been an incredibly, you know, value-add service. And we lost because we didn't, you know, we didn't go to college with the right person. Or other times where we won the deal and we're sitting there trying to implement the software and it's just totally the wrong fit. And so what initially pushed me over to consumer was just this idea that the best products won. And I always loved the idea of like, let's evaluate the merits of the product. Let's evaluate how well the teams understand the needs of the user. And that led me into consumer investing. What's interesting is now with SaaS and with more of these bottoms-up adoption models, that line is getting blurred a bit in terms of how people make decisions in enterprises. And so, you know, we'll talk a little bit about our evolution over time but we're ultimately seeing at the end of the day, whether you're selling to a business or you're selling to a consumer, there's an individual that's making that decision, and some of their decision criteria are logical and based on facts, and some of it's based on emotions and feelings, and you need to understand both those things to, to understand why anyone's going to adopt any product.
0: That's a really great point. Why did you decide to raise you know a billion dollar fund and just grow more and more? And obviously, I know you still do invest in consumer brands but think about different certain categories that are, you know, software
1: inclined. So, I think part of it was a function of what our aspirations as a team are to be and the role we want to fill for our founders and part of it is a reaction to a market where there's a lot more dollars floating around. So, our goal is to be the partner for the most interesting series A companies. Sometimes we get them a little bit earlier at seed. Sometimes we miss it and we got to hustle and catch up at Series B. But that's really where we want to intersect, folks. And if you're looking at round sizes for the best companies in the 20, 30 million dollar range, there's a certain amount of capital you need to have to be competitive in those deals, as well as have enough reserves for those businesses over time. So if you look at the billion dollars behind the scenes, it's really two funds. It's a 500 million dollar early stage fund and a $500 million uh, growth stage fund. You know, we found that not only is it important to be a partner early on, but the best founders are looking for investors that have dry powder, that have conviction to double down on companies when they're not obvious to other investors. And so we thought our best investments, we want to be able to have the option to put $50, $100 million in those businesses because that's how we can be less beholden to the outside market and really uh, rest on our conviction that we have around the companies we're investing in.
0: If you do lead a round, um, like whether it's seed or Series A, will you still be interested in leading rounds further uh, thereafter with the company?
1: Absolutely. So I've just had one recently where we led the the A after leading the seed. and that was because you know we have an information advantage versus all other investors looking at that company. We know how the team operates, We understand the metrics intrinsically. And so you should be able to uh, be a better follow-on investor than initial investor, because especially these days, a lot of rounds are happening really quickly. So you have imperfect information in those early decisions, but you have a lot better information over time. So that was one example. Another company that we led the seed round in a little over a year ago, they went out to raise a Series A, and it was a lot of like, we love you butts. You know, it's like, oh, we think you're the best founder in the world. We think you're the best company, but like, we're not going to write you a check. And in that case, like we thought the team was working on something really special. Maybe they were a little bit early for the A. And so we led a five, $6 million, you know, kind of in between round. And then six months later, they, they raised the series A from another firm. And so in that case, we had enough ownership from those two initial ones that we were happy to bring in another partner to help them grow. So this is where you can leverage capital from an offensive perspective, where in the early days of Forerunner, we were very beholden to third party investors Uh, to be able to follow onto our companies, even if we had conviction. And now we love teaming up with other folks. We think that's one of the Goldilocks things. It sounds sort of silly, about a billion dollars, saying that that's not like a massive fund. But like we feel like we're small enough that we can still partner with other firms and really think about what's the right fit for founders. At the same time, if we have conviction around something, we don't need to wait for someone else to invest in the business. We can go ahead, write that check, and help the founders get back to work that much faster.
0: Yeah, I think your last point really resonates on if you have that much conviction, then you can actually then lead again in the round. Because I mean, I remember speaking to an entrepreneur um, who's now an investor, but he was saying when he was an entrepreneur, that the funds, even though the business was doing well and it had great traction, the funds that led at the C stage, for example, they definitely wanted to exercise their pro rata rights, but they didn't want to leave the A. They wanted someone else to kind of step up and leave the A. And then that puts on a lot of pressure for the founders to actually go out and actually get. Um, the A and it's funny because the actual offer that they wanted to do for the A for the current investor pool was a much better deal than actually for the investors than what, what they actually ended up getting since they had to go out to to outside capital, which I thought was also quite interesting.
1: Yeah it introduces a lot of you know external factors and if you think about it, any one of these businesses, there's a lot more investors now, but you're still beholden to the opinion of like one to two dozen people which is kind of crazy, right? You're, you're looking at businesses that are ultimately going to serve millions of customers and whether one or two dozen people like you determines your ability to raise the next round. And so we wanted to take some of that ambiguity out of the frame. We wanted to set the metrics with our founders in terms of what was most important. And if we can bring someone else in to partner with us, great. But part of the fund uh, objectives was being able to not be reliant on that third-party source of capital over time.
0: That makes sense. So tell us a bit. I know that one of the areas that you're very focused on is as you describe it the empowerment economy. What is the empowerment economy in your mind?
1: One of the luxuries of being in this job is you get to pick where you spend your time. And so, you know, while we're not like tree hugging double double bottom line investors, you know, we do like to focus on areas where it is like helping the world, you know, be a li- maybe a little bit of a less horrible place. And um, the empowerment economy is really this idea that technology can help people get back to the original ideas around the American dream. I think you have a lot of Americans that are feeling like the system is set up against them. You know, it's designed for rich people to get richer, big companies to take advantage of them and the government to squabble it somewhere in the middle. And so this is really about a set of tools and technologies that help people achieve financial independence. Right. So how can they take advantage of. Investment opportunities that were maybe only available to people who are very wealthy historically. It's around education and education, not just generically like going to school, but around skills and job training. How can you bet on yourself, invest in yourself, and end up with more marketable skills along the way? How can you, as a small business owner, where you're competing against the Walmarts and the Amazons of the world, you know, fight back and have an offering where people aren't shopping with you out of the kindness of their heart. They're shopping with you because you have a better selection, better offering for them as consumers. And so we lumped a bunch of things into this category around empowerment, but we think it's really the opportunity for people to get back to leveraging technology, to bet on themselves, to make a brighter future for, um, you know, for their families and the people around them.
0: So leveraging technologies for small businesses, right? Or themselves being able to create um, a business in order for them to be to compete against that could be, you know, the major retailers out there or the big dogs per se in the market.
1: People will talk about this like creator economy piece and like the word creator I think gets thrown around a lot right now. Every like two years ago or three years ago, it was all influencer mm-hmm. and now it's just like it's like find every place, just swap it out, now it's creator. And so that's like a subset of this. But a lot of people have, you know, they've built an online brand, they've built online presence, but they're largely under, under monetized because the options they have for themselves are are like YouTube ads or a Patreon campaign. And so some of this is about online enablement, some of it about is about offline enablement.
0: How do you think when you think about like the pain points specifically for maybe a retail shop or um, just a small business, how do you analyze, you know, the actual pain points for those businesses and where opportunities actually could lie?
1: I mean, it's, it's funny because in venture, SMBs used to be like the category you wouldn't want to touch with the 10-foot pole. You know, they made decisions like businesses with all sorts of bureaucracy and they spent like consumers. You know, it was, it was hard and they were cheap. And so it was an area that like, if you wanted a long, illustrious career in venture, you didn't, you didn't necessarily go there. But what's changed over time is not the attitude of the SMBs. You know, they, they still are cheap. You know, it's still as complicated to deployment to, to deploy technology. But what's changed is the way the startups approach them. And so we were early investors in a business called FAIR, which is a wholesale supplier for Main Street USA businesses. And they didn't show up day one with this idea that, like, hey, we're gonna sell you a bunch of products, and if you don't sell them, you're on your own, tough luck, like buyer beware. They showed up and said, look, a lot of these small businesses, they behave like consumers. And consumers have gotten used to the idea that if you buy something online and you don't like it, you send it back and you can return it. And by the way, that's free. And so FAIR's initial hook was like, look, we're going to send you products we think you can sell in your stores, but if they don't sell through. Send them back to us. We'll take it off and we want to keep you as a customer. And that was a very different approach. That was much more collaborative where they were on the same side that they were leveraging So their technology to understand which products would sell in that particular store, they were doing it not to take advantage of that business, but they were doing it to partner with that business. And so we're seeing more and more attitudes like this. I think Toast is a great example of a company where they were, you know, selling into these small restaurants and the restaurants just got absolutely hammered with COVID and with the change of behavior patterns that happened almost overnight. And they quickly revamped their product to be all about, you know, kind of touchless ordering, being more delivery friendly, and that was where it went from like kind of a grind, kind of a hard SMB business to something that was really opening doors for incremental revenue for these companies, and that's when that business really really took off. And so we think like restaurants are almost the canary in the coal mine for SMB businesses. It's a little bit how like online travel was a category that adopted a lot of technologies earlier than other sectors. We think we can look at restaurants because there's a high frequency, there's a lot of, you know, people shop in a lot of different places. It naturally happens three times a day that you eat. We think we can look at some of the evolution that's happened there and then apply some of those proxies to other categories that maybe are less tech savvy but have similar pain points as local businesses.
0: How do you also kind of maybe describe yourself as an investor? Like I've had Investors on the show that maybe are a bit more, I like to say top down, where they are extremely thematic, thesis driven, thinking a lot, observing what's kind of going on in the present and kind of where they want to spend their time. Where I have other investors that I think a bit more, I would say bottoms up, where they really, where the entrepreneur has to uh, really is the one that actually brings that insight to them. And then they kind of make that decision and they're maybe not as trend focused per se. Where do you kind of? Follow yourself in the line of of those two things.
1: Sure. I would say this is an area that I've I've like evolved in, in the 18 or whatever years I've been doing this. And I would say early on, I was like very market centric, right? My belief was that you had good enough market opportunities where even, you know, okay teams could rise to the occasion. And by the way, as the company got better, you could bring on more talent, you could bring on better people and a lot of those businesses worked pretty well early on they get 20 million 50 million in revenue whatever but like they largely fell apart over time and that was just a challenge that those those teams struggled to understand what great talent looked like and when they found great talent they struggled bringing those people on board and so they were very successful in act 1 but when it got to be act 2 act 3 they they had more challenges and so i would say over time i've evolved to Um, not just caring a lot about the team's ability to execute, but also whether the team is going to be a pleasure to work with. (laughs) Like that's one of the, the luxuries we have that we get to pick the people we work with. Obviously they're picking us as well, but where you feel like you have a level of camaraderie that like one plus one equals three, like the interaction of you as an investor, them as a founding team is going to be better than each of you operating alone. And so I still have like, Categories and markets where I'm very predetermined to want to do something in because I feel like there's just a gap. There's a pain point that's not being addressed. And so I'll be looking for companies in those categories, but I'm much more reluctant to jump into something uh, if it feels like it's going to be pulling teeth the whole way to get alignment with the team.
0: How do you analyze teams? When you're conducting due diligence, meeting with entrepreneurs, what are some of maybe the tactics in order maybe to gain trust or really realize? Because I mean, especially you know, the last few years, the market has been going so fast. I'd imagine diligence is probably only for a few days, if not a few hours. And so how do you kind of put this all together?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things that like, on one hand is incredibly challenging to make a judgment call in these tight timeframes. But in 95% of the cases, it's actually shockingly easy, (laughs) you know, and and that's because a lot of people who, you know, risk everything in their life, they go out to start a business, they don't do the fundamental work to really understand their customer, right? And so they might have have gone to business school and wanted to start a company and like maybe the world needs one more pet insurance business, you know, or something along those lines. But when you talk to them, you understand that their level of understanding of the real pain points, why people buy, how they make that decision, how do you build lifelong relationships with your customers, that level of understanding is is skin deep. And so we're looking for folks who don't necessarily have like 20 years of experience doing something, but where they have a great level of understanding of who their customer is, and they have a high level of precision around how to operate their business. They understand the it might be early, but they understand the metrics that matter and they understand what questions they need to ask along the way. And so that's really just like, does this person understand their business in an honest way? And then also you can you can find out what the relationship will be like largely by the questions that they ask us, right? So you'll have a lot of folks where it's like, you know, you turn it over and say, hey, what do you want to know about me? And it's like, what's your fun size? what's your decision process it's almost like they read a blog somewhere about what questions you should ask investors versus really getting into the meat of it of understanding like hey like where have you butted heads with the founder before why did that happened how to play out you fired someone before why did that come up how did that play out what happens when you've had to shut companies down you know what happens when you know you have a, a you know a, a crime happen at your your business that you invested in like You do this long enough and things happen, right? And so those are the conversations I want to engage in because you can tell that they're actually spending their time to understand what sort of a partner you'll actually be. They're doing their research. And so often you just find people where, you know, they kind of go through the motions, but it's clear they're collecting term sheets and they're just trying to optimize the deal.
0: Those are, you know, excellent points. Now, you recently wrote this article that I really enjoyed reading about empowering Main Street. And there was one part early on you talk about how you mentioned how OpenTable and Yelp achieved massive local market share, but they weren't embraced. And you talked about how the market that they were targeting, it's like a trillion dollar market, but they are only valued you know, at several billion. Several billion is still pretty good. But what did you mean by that term in terms of embrace? And how do you identify if a company, as you're looking at companies and investing and you know, being on the board of some of these companies, how do you kind of think about the word embrace in in that context?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like we're really looking for companies where they're partnering up with their customers. And so in the case of of like Yelp and Open Table, they had, they were, there sort of a necessary evil for restaurants to, to work with them, but they had this love-hate relationship where they were largely extracting a toll from the ecosystem for what they're providing instead of opening up incremental value and charging for that. So I'll give you an example of something that's going on right now. Like you look at Etsy, for example, they've had these seller, uh, revolts and it's interesting because if you think about Etsy, they are enabling people's businesses, many of whose businesses did not exist before. And they're taking a relatively light take rate in the grand scheme of things for helping something go from nothing to a business. But the way that they phrase it, the way that they've increased prices over time, and the way that they don't allow people to opt in or opt out of some of these programs has created this adversarial relationship with their sellers. And one of the decisions I was involved with a company called Hotel Tonight early on, and so we're a marketplace, right? We need to take a take rate, otherwise we can't attract customers, bring them onto the platform and sell hotel rooms. But they did things along the way where it was like, hey, do you want to specifically target people through their you know, area code or their zip code based on where their, their phone actually is right now? Do you want to be promoted in this particular area around the top deal? These were all opt-in options for people to give us a higher take rate, but in exchange, they were going to move more rooms. And so in a category like that, where you had you know, basically, if they didn't sell the room that day... It was going to be completely lost revenue. If you showed up with a 40% take rate, everyone would think that you had this like egregious level of uh, intrusiveness. But if you show up with a 15% take rate and then let people opt in for programs that are going to move more rooms, it's just a very different conversation along the way.
0: That makes a lot of sense. But if you were starting the next Yelp or Open Table, what would then you do differently that'd be more partner with your customer, maybe more alignment as well and, and be embraced?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we've got a company called table 22 that we invested in where they're not direct comps, but I'll give it as an example where what they do is they help interesting restaurants that have almost like a brand larger than the actual footprint of the store uh, be able to launch subscription offerings where people can subscribe to, to, pro, to food offerings at those restaurants. And this was really important during COVID because a lot of those restaurants weren't open, they weren't seeing as many people. But that idea around what does being a subscriber or a member of a restaurant look like, that can evolve to interesting things over time in a way where you're reserving certain tables for people last minute. You're giving them exclusive access to you know, either special dishes or like a, a wine tasting or something like that, you know, in the back room. And so I think part of it is is the evolution we've seen in software, where instead of charging for every customer that's showing up, if you're on like a Figma or something like that, the largely the sale is around an upsell premium version of that. And so more specifically with Open Table, look if you said, hey, it's it's completely free for anyone who's an existing customer who's been there before, we'll give you table management. We'll give you all the reservations on your site. But if we generate someone who's going to show up at your table, you know, we're going to gonna take a piece of that because that's a customer that we generated, right? Hey, by the way, if we sell them up front, because restaurants have a huge problem with cancellations, especially during peak times, Friday, Saturday night, we're going to not just get them to reserve a table, but we're get, going to get them to prepay and we're going to get them to opt in into some special, you know, pairing option, which is a higher revenue uh, per table. Like there's upsell opportunities along the way where everyone is winning and where you're charging more from that incremental value. That's something that I think we've seen uh, have a high degree of penetration in the software ecosystem of bottoms up adoption. You know, businesses like Canva are worth you know tens of billions of dollars have, have leveraged that. And that's something that I think more companies can take advantage of in the SMB space as well, especially as the cost of distribution goes down um through you know through more bottoms- up adoption models
0: yeah I mean I think that also like one of the main points that I that I take aware of is also being able to charge when there's actually a transaction or a sale and not just charge um you know idly right um, as like a monthly subscription so definitely understand that there's definitely more alignment there because then revenue is actually coming in through the you know piece of technology directly which is pretty cool
1: I mean you look at a company like groupon which you know, on one hand was the fastest company ever to get to a billion dollars in revenue, but on the other hand, largely underdelivered on the promise. Um, that was their value prop. It was like, look, you're not advertising. A lot of people don't understand advertising and cost of acquisition as a small, small business. You, you know, you were paying for someone to walk through that door with an existing transaction. And people were willing to give a really high percent to do that. Ultimately, the challenge there is that business became very sales-led versus product-led, where the incentives originally were aligned with their business partners. And that got to be a point where the sales comp structure was set up in a way where it wasn't as aligned, and you had more merchants ultimately dissatisfied partnering with them. But if you look at that point and that value prop that they had, someone will fill that gap at some point where you're delivering customers prepaid in a way where the cost of sales goes to nothing for the business, and it's purely incremental margin.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good recap of like how Groupon was so successful for a few years and then the reason why they weren't. Yeah. In your article, you mentioned how a lot of people want to shop local. I think this was mentioned in the article that there was maybe a, a bit of a disconnect of what people actually wanted to do and then how they're actually spending when it wasn't the case. Uh, they were shopping you know, very local. When you kind of do your research and you generate these insights, how do you think about the differences between what maybe consumers say and have you know maybe like the best intentions at heart, if shopping local is the best intention, which I believe it is, versus maybe how they're actually uh, spending their dollars?
1: This is the million dollar question here, because there's this big gap between what people say they're going to do and what they're actually going to do, and so we see it as our job not to sit in our you know venture capitalist. Is your office and pontificate about what people are doing, we see it as our job to listen. So we do a lot of primary research around what consumers are actually wanting and what's important to them right now. But we also do a fair amount of verifying and looking at actual purchase data to see whether they're following through on those intentions. And there's been no category, I would say, that's been like more obvious of a you know suspect in this regard than the sustainability one, where like if you listen to everyone, they would be driving their Priuses around and everything is recyclable. And then you go to the park and the trash can's overflowing with stuff. And so we, we've really had to look hard at that category because it's strategically important to us. It is something that's important to the consumer. But what people really want is they want just as good of a product at just as good of a price with some sustainability benefit on top of that. They don't want the trade-offs necessarily. And so I think the same is the case when it comes to shopping locally. Look, you want to support that business. You want to be able to have a, a, a local affinity where you go in, they know you it's like cheers, right? They go in, they know your name, you get that level of service, but you don't want to pay more to get that product. You don't want to be faced with uh, different return expectations for when things, you know, if it doesn't work out how they get sent back. You don't want to be faced with less inventory uh, that's available. And so that's where I think there's an opportunity for technology and for startups that are like well funded to be able to fill some of those gaps between the experience people have gotten accustomed to from big box retailers with massive technology arms and massive ability to invest in operations and the local person that they like are cheering for and want to support.
0: How then do you, though, think about? Maybe it's the elephant in the room, but 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 price sensitivity, right? When you have you know small shops, probably tend. I'd imagine that for some of these products, it probably is more expensive than you know say it like the WalMarts or Targets that they're going to going to do uh, going to which I mean that's part of why I'd imagine Walmart wiped out a whole bunch of small businesses, right? Just due to like price sensitivity. As an investor, as someone that is very bullish on small medium businesses. How do you also think about that, that consumer perspective on price sensitivity to make sure that these businesses uh, survive?
1: I think bookstores is a great place to look, right? Like Amazon, that's the category they started in. You can find any book you'd ever want to read on Amazon. But what's interesting and maybe non-obvious is that over the last decade, the amount of independent bookstores has almost doubled. So it's not this like declining trend. If you look at that and correlate it, it's really when borders went out of business. So there's, the, there's been this whole wave of like targeted specialty retail, the sports authorities, Toys R Us's of the world. And those businesses have largely failed very frequently because investors and getting too much debt and, and you know not having management teams innovate. But as that wave has gone away, you end up with like one of two things. I either already know what I want, I want it delivered, and I want it easy. And the Amazons are going to do great for you on that behalf. Or in the bookcase, it's like, hey, I don't know what book I want to read, right? I'm interested in X. Do you have a recommendation of a good mystery novel? I want to go in the store and I want to flip through some pages and see you know, see what it looks like before I buy the book because that's ultimately like saving a dollar or two here and there is less valuable to people than wasting their time on a book that's not relevant. I'll give you another example. My son, one of my, both my kids actually, but my younger son plays soccer. He needed some new cleats You know, so what do we do? We go online to Nike.com and, like, we buy some cleats and they look awesome, right? They show up and, like, they're just not comfortable, period, right? And if you think about soccer cleats, like, they've got to be comfortable because you're going to be wearing them, running around, trying to kick a ball. And so we went down to the local, like, specialty soccer store, which by the way, is doing a lot better now that there's no like sports authority to compete with them. They had much broader inventory. They had a guy there who like knew how to fit them. They've got balls in the store that you can kick around and play around with. And like, we weren't going to leave the store, you know, without him buying something. Now on the flip side, I will say like their inventory was pretty poor. And so that's the kind of thing if you think about like what have ghost kitchens enabled for restaurants, well, why isn't there like ghost warehouses you know, they're able to work with these local stores where the local store sells the stuff, but the right product is shipped to you um, along the way. And so I think there are blends, you know, both the online type business with partnering up with the local specialty store that's going to create opportunity for entrepreneurs. But where like, there are some products where you want advice, you want to try it out. Um, those are, are better locally than getting delivered via, you know, via FedEx truck or, or via uh, Amazon Prime.
0: I really like how you phrased that and positioned it, especially with the Amazon example with books, how Amazon replaced the the big box stores, the Borders, the Barnes & Nobles, where almost those were like a combination of... Having not infinite, but almost a lot of SKUs, right? And a lot of variety and probably great prices combined with, you know, actually being able to actually go into the store and actually go kind of be able to wander and see which book you want to actually purchase. That's now split, where now if you want to, like, if you know what you want to buy, you can just go online, Amazon, and maybe buy it, or you want, you know, do you want price and, you know, it's convenient and easy. And then it's like, hey, if I want to actually browse somewhere or go, then I, or actually, or, you know, in your example, About cleats, go and actually try on shoes. You actually go then to your local store in order to actually try it on. That's really cool. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because you look at like a sports authority, and in, in a lot of ways, I think they're they were like solving for nothing, right? Like, you either want to have like kind of infinite inventory and infinite convenience, or you want to have someone where it's like curated and where their opinion it matters. And those stores, you went in there and they would be out of stock of some things. They weren't necessarily the best price. And like, God help you if you want someone to open the little like dressing room and actually try something on, you know, like you couldn't find anyone. And so it's like, no, people talk about the death of retail. It's like, well, it's kind of the death of crappy retail. Like, you know, it's not well run businesses where the consumer is top of mind to everyone in the store. Those companies are actually doing quite well. Like people love shopping. It's just shopping sucked for a while. So how do how do we return back to a great experience for people especially under the backdrop of all the supply chain challenges we're having right now?
0: Yeah, where actually customer service actually matters again. That's cool. That's cool. Have you made any changes to your thesis or or just maybe how you invest um, during COVID or maybe what was your reaction or you know as a result of COVID in terms of how you think about your thesis in terms of where you where, where you actually invest?
1: I mean, I think a lot of investors early COVID had this like the world has forever changed, you know, thesis and we're all going to sit on our houses forever and like hang out with our friends over Zoom and, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, we definitely saw the shift of e-commerce purchasing. We saw, you know, new technologies around education, around grocery delivery um, being adopted. And we we made some investments along the way. Now, I will say part of our conversation with those founders was like, look, COVID's going to go away at some point. It's taken longer than a lot of us thought, but it's like, how do you build a durable business leveraging the audience you generated during COVID, but in a post-COVID world where things will likely return back to some sense of normal? And so, I think largely, if I were to summarize it, I would say our thesis hasn't changed that much due to COVID, um, but you know, there are behavior patterns that are much more familiar today than they were a few years ago. Like if I were to tell myself three years ago that my, my son, I keep reading up but like would want a phone predominantly so he could use the QR code to read menus at a restaurant. I would have told you you're crazy, right? Like QR codes, like nobody uses QR codes. Um, but I think the QR code was kind of like the dark horse winner of COVID where even my parents are like pulling out their phone. Uh, you know, looking at QR codes and they don't know how to do anything on the phone, right? They don't know how to call call my brother or me, but that's about it. So I think there are some technologies that become more prominent. I think people became a much wider uh, demographic, became comfortable ordering things with their phone. But at the end of the day, the the objective around human connection, the objective of people wanting to get out and do things, I don't think that changed that much because I think that's more intrinsic.
0: Those are really great points. I also wanted to ask, what is one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: Sure. I mean, my personal and professional lives are kind of intertwined, uh, so this might be this might be a cop out, but like I recently read the Wright Brothers book by David McCullough, and I don't know if you've read that one, but uh, it was just really refreshing, right? I think we're living in a time right now where there's a lot of founders, venture capitalists, whomever that talk a big game on Twitter and, uh, you know, don't really put the work in and don't really deliver in reality. And if you look at the study of, of the rights, I mean, these guys were just cranking, right? Like they were largely dismissed. A lot of people told them what they were doing that just wasn't possible. And they just like stuck to the facts. They grinded and, you know, they ultimately were were successful propelling man forward. And it really got back to, You know, some of like feeling good about America, you know, in a time when that's harder. And just like that ingenuity that was their turn of the century that we see in so many of the founders that we back, but we don't see as much more broadly in society. And so that was like a really refreshing book that I just read. And then professionally, the book that I always love that if people haven't read it, I would definitely check it out. It's called Shoe Dog. And that's really the story around Nike's founding. And like one of the privileges we have in this industry is just being able to shadow and be alongside amazing founders as they go from solving these niche small needs to building transformational brands and transformational businesses. And that was just a great story about how you know someone who loved running, who wasn't getting the right shoes, started working with a Japanese company, and then just the, you know the rest is history, but incredibly inspiring, very easy to read, and just helps you understand the plight of the entrepreneur, where it's like, on one hand, you're raising millions of dollars from investors, but the next hand, you're picking up paper towels at Costco. And like just this like job that is basically everything that needs to get done at any given moment in order to push the business forward. It was very refreshing on that fund, and I would, I would recommend people check it out.
0: No, totally, totally. Shoe Dog is definitely our number one rated book here on, uh, oh, really? on, on the podcast. Sorry. Yeah, but no, 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 not at all. <laughs> really but the Wright well. Brothers book, you're only the second person that brought up the Wright Brothers book. So, okay. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. My final question to you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received?
1: It's interesting. I would say that I, you get a variety of advice. Like the thing that resonates with me that I will tell others is is really to focus on who you're partnering with in your career, not the what as much. And so a lot of times you'll have people that will say, hey, I'm going to go work at this startup because it's really hot. Or, hey, this you know, venture firm is offering me a job. Maybe I should go check it out. And I tend to think that the people you work with tend to be more important to opening doors in the future. Then than the what, right? So my last startup I worked at, I talked about some of the drama earlier on, but like that business ultimately failed. Like we sold to IBM, but it was like a far cry from our ambitions much earlier in the life of the company. But the person who I worked for, this guy Andy Palmer, he took a liking to me. He really cared about relationships and he ultimately opened the door for me to to get into venture, which was transformative for me from a career perspective. And so it wasn't that that company was successful, but the people I worked with, I learned a ton from them and they ultimately opened interesting doors. Other folks from that company went on to work at Salesforce, went on to work at Dropbox, went on to work at other interesting venture firms. And so you look at these, you know, people will talk about the PayPal mafia, right? That's sort of the most prominent example, but there are these little pockets of networks of great people that go from one company to the next, where not only are you working with folks where they understand what excellent actually looks like, but the level of training and insight you get just by shadowing those people is is kind of much more beneficial than you know just showing up and being at Facebook at the right time.
0: I really like that. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun chatting.
1: Sure, Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. you care, Mike.
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Brian on the show. It was really a treat. Follow him on Twitter for more insights at O-M-A-L. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.